Hey, everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mind Valley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions. And at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mind Valley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mind Valley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mind Valley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com forward slash S-U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. Now let's get started with the show. What I actually suggest that everybody should essentially try to incorporate into their routines, essentially make it a habit, is lowercase r reinvention, which is the kind of small, subtle shifts that just enable you to stay fresh, just like little tweaks Because what often happens sometimes, unfortunately, is like, you know, people get busy, they focus on doing the things they have to do. And so for 10 years, you might be doing the same thing, being at the same job, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, if there's a market shift, if there's a problem in your company, you are kind of caught unawares and okay, boom, you know, now it has to be this forced dramatic thing that you're pushed into. It's always better to have choices and not be pushed into something. But if you have been reinventing yourself in small ways along the way, then you're far better prepared. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. We have a returning guest that I had such a fantastic conversation for our first episode. Dory Clark is coming back, where instead of talking about our self reinvention, we're going to talk more about businesses. Especially in 2020, we had a lot of things that became uncertain. And so how do we make ourselves more resilient in business during uncertain times is really the focus we want to talk about today. And if you're not familiar with Dory Clark, she's a marketing strategist and professional speaker teaches at Duke University's Fuca School of Business and a visiting professor at the IE Business School in Spain. She has guest lectured in Harvard Business School, Harvard Kennedy School, Stanford Graduate School of Business, the Warren School, MIT Sloan, and more. She's been nominated Top 50 Business Thinker by Thinker50, author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You and Standing Out. And her latest book is coming out as well about how to play the long game. I'll give her a chance to talk more about that. Phenomenal teacher, trainer, speaker in the space of career and businesses. And it's such a joy to have her come back on the show today. Dory, welcome back. Jason, my man, so glad to be here. Now, it was fascinating. I mean, we chatted right when the podcast started and we focused a lot on the individual Now, in this case, we're going to talk a lot more about the business. And so I'd be curious maybe to start, like, how have you found yourself adapting in your business as times became a little more uncertain at the beginning of 2020? Yes. Like everyone, my plans changed pretty dramatically from February to March of 2020. I was originally going to be spending three out of four of the weeks of April on the road. I had business trips planned to Vancouver, to Russia, 
to Dallas, to Florida, to Virginia, everywhere. And it was, it was all wiped out and all of the revenue along with it. And, you know, at first it seemed like, oh, you know, maybe it's a month or two of disruption. And then you realize it's the entire year. I, for the past five or six years, had derived a significant share of my income from keynote speaking. So it was a really big deal. I was used to being on the road almost all the time. And that was how I got a lot of my money. So one of the first things that I realized that I needed to do when COVID struck was to pivot into doing more with online courses. And I think the the key thing for me, and this is something I actually talk about sort of metaphorically, but I also kind of dig into it in my new book, The Long Game, is a lot of people had that thought, right? Oh, I need to do online. I need to do digital. But it becomes extraordinarily hard to do it if you've never done it before, if you have no planning, no training, and you suddenly have to do something and make a shift under conditions of emergency. So for me, the thing that I felt very fortunate about is that since 2014, I had been experimenting in small ways with online courses. And so I knew how to make them. I had relationships. I was familiar with the process. And so having that kind of small side bet enabled me to turn on the spigot and to be able to put more emphasis into it and to be able to do it relatively seamlessly. Whereas if you're starting from zero, it's just almost impossible, especially when everyone else is piling in. So I'm a huge fan when it comes to strategic thinking and playing the long game of these kind of small, you know, 10%, 20% bets so that we can keep ourselves fresh and enable us to have something to pivot into. Mm, I love it. Well, congratulations on the pivot. And the topic we want to cover today is really how do we deal with uncertain times? And in this particular case, we had to force a lot of things to happen digitally. But for those of you who kind of got caught by surprise, do you feel like that would have been the best thing is like to be able to prepare more? Like we're seeing a lot more uncertainty, but how do you start, you know, hedging against these uncertainties if you don't know what's coming? Yeah, this is the question that sort of plagues me. (laughs) During a lot of COVID, once the weather turned warmer in New York, I would spend hours walking around the city. I mean, literally like three hours a day, I'd be taking walks. And I listened obsessively to these audiobooks by Nassim Taleb, who, for those of you who aren't familiar, he's a former financier and the author of a lot of books about Largely, it's about stock market uncertainty, but you know you can kind of expand it out. So he wrote Anti-Fragile and The Black Swan and, and things like that. It's all about risk and predicting change. I really wanted to wrap my head around it. And one thing that I thought was especially helpful, in the summertime, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review about scenario planning. And this was the insight that struck me you know, we all know, right? I mean, everybody's heard like, oh, you know, it's a good idea to think about future scenarios and what could they be, right? Like we all know that, duh, okay. No one actually does it, but (laughs) we know it's a good idea. But the part that was super interesting for me and I think has become kind of foundational is this. The author was saying, look, write out all the different scenarios. You know, maybe it's three, maybe it's five, whatever, about the way that your industry is evolving or geopolitics, you know, whatever the realm is that you're looking at. But the key is, this is important, there are certain actions that you can take and things that you can do that will prepare you in any of the scenarios. In some cases, the steps for preparation are different based on the different scenarios, but there are usually overlapping elements. And so, There might be five different scenarios, and if you do a particular activity, it serves you in good stead 
in three out of those five. All we have in life is probability. All we can do is make our best guess. And it might not be that, but if you have a 60% chance of having an activity pay off no matter what happens, it's actually a pretty good bet. And it was what I had experienced inadvertently with online courses. I had been very strategically optimizing five or six years ago when I got into it. I was not optimizing for a pandemic. I had no idea that was coming. But what I was optimizing for is it seemed really self-evident to me. I'm like, you know what? I might get sick of traveling all the time. I might not want to do this, you know, with these trudging around for keynote speeches. Or I thought, you know what? There could be a recession and everybody cancels their conferences. That's not implausible at all. That happens all the time. Or, you know, God forbid, if I got sick and I couldn't travel, then, you know, the revenue goes away. Any of those things seemed like far more likely and predictable things. And so I got into digital stuff as a result of hedging against that. It also happened that there was a side benefit that doing that preparation enabled me to be successful during a pandemic. And so I think that's the question is if we can map out future possibilities and say, what is it I can do now that will help me no matter which of them happens, then we can actually be prepared. A lot of it, you know, frankly, I mean, yay, Mind Valley, it's things like investing in ourselves and personal mm-hmm. development and professional development so that we have that kind of foundation that will enable us to be successful regardless of the change in the terrain. I love that. And I actually wanted to poke at it a little bit because, you know, somebody could look at this and say, wow, well, you were in a teaching role, you were a speaker and to take the message and make it digital seems like an easy stretch. And so I'd be curious to know what you've experienced for making business more resilient. Do you feel like it's more of a, oh, because you're in this industry, it's easier or, oh, because you've done this, it's easier. So is it more about the individual or the industry to be more resilient? Certainly we know that during COVID, particular industries were hit incredibly hard. There's not a lot you can do. You know, if you're a Broadway performer or you're a restaurant owner, right? You're just, you know, you're kind of cut off at the knees and it's harder. It's not impossible, but it's much harder to be able to make a pivot. But one of the things that was so interesting for me during those early days when I was kind of roaming around the city, I was taking all kinds of photographs, you know, just to to sort of document this. And it really got me thinking, I took a series of photos of people that I felt like were doing innovative things. And I'll give you a few examples. And for me, what I extracted out of this was, in many ways, it's like kind of a mantra of questions that we can, and I think I would argue we should, be asking ourselves all the time. And so one of them is, what else can I sell to my customers? Right? Like in your business, you have a base of customers. They're people who already like you and trust you. If for some reason, the thing that you used to sell them is no longer a possibility, it could be because of COVID, it could be because of whatever. Well, what else could you sell? One crazy example, in one neighborhood in New York, there was this guy that owned a coffee shop. It's a small thing. It's just one guy that owned it. And of course, they shut indoor dining. And so, you know, he had this big, beautiful, expensive space. Nobody can sit in it anymore. And he said, well, how can I use this space. I'm paying all this rent for it. Turns out the guy was an antique collector and restaurants were closed, but you know what's not closed? Antique shops. So he moved all his antiques into the shop. And so he suddenly said, you know, you know, what's a thing now? I know what's a thing is takeout coffee 
in an antique shop. And so that's that's how he kept himself afloat. That is incredible creativity and successful use of what else can I sell my customers? You know, that's so funny. I have to share also an example that I thought was quite genius that I noticed in Bali, Indonesia, is there was actually a festival. So tourism, as I see Sabine, one of our Mind Valley members is mentioning, is one of the industries that was particularly hard hit. There was a festival happening and I think it was called Love Anger. And so they had ads all over the city about the festival that was coming. And I'm assuming they had sold a bunch of tickets for people that wanted to go to this music festival. And of course, everything shut down. The next thing I noticed is the same place they had put all the ads. They now put a sticker instead of the festival. They said, we do alcohol delivery 24-7. <laughs> and hey, you know, they were like, hey, these are the type of customers we already have. This is the type of people that are paying attention to us. They found an alternative method of generating funds during those times. And uh, that made them resilient, right? So I find that that creativity is an essential part. Amazing. I love it. Yes, perfect. That's absolutely mm -hmm. perfect. When you talked about the individual, right? Like making the business more resilient. So we talk about industries being creative. What about personally? Are there specific traits or things that we should be working on ourselves to make us more resilient? As you know, times are not looking like they're going to be more certain going forward. They seem there's going to be more uncertainty. So what are the things that you think we should be doing individually to prepare as well? Yeah, absolutely, Jason. You know, in in my first book, I got a little prop here. In my first book, <laughs> Reinventing You, I talk about the difference between what I call capital R reinvention and lowercase r reinvention. And most of what gets, you know, all the all the press, right, is the capital R reinvention, where it's something really dramatic. It's like, you know what, I was an insurance salesman and now I'm going to be a photographer. Or, you know, oh, I got laid off and, you know, but now I started my own Etsy business or something. You know, it's like a big transition in, in industry or role or something like that. And that's fantastic. But of course, that is not the only kind of reinvention. What I actually suggest that everybody should essentially try to incorporate into their routines, essentially make it a habit, is lowercase r reinvention, which is the kind of small, subtle shifts that just enable you to stay fresh, just like little tweaks. Because what often happens sometimes, unfortunately, is like, you know, people get busy, they focus on doing the things they have to do. And so for 10 years, you might be doing the same thing, being at the same job, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, if there's a market shift, if there's a problem in your company, you are kind of caught unawares and okay, boom, you know, now it has to be this forced dramatic thing that you're pushed into. It's always better to have choices and not be pushed into something. But if you have been reinventing yourself in small ways along the way, then you're far better prepared. It's kind of like steering the car and, you know, changing it 10 degrees or having to, you know, swivel the wheel around three times. So examples might be saying, you know what, I'm going to create a ritual where once a week, I'm going to take a half hour LinkedIn learning class at lunch, you know, just to learn about a new thing. Or for instance, in Reinventing You, I talk about this guy who worked for a long time at one company. And one day he woke up and he finally realized, he's like, oh my God, everyone I know is at this company. And it wasn't a problem for him then, but he realized like, oh my gosh, if ever I were let go, that would be a huge problem because there's no one he can turn to to hire him. And so he began having breakfast with, you know, a different colleague in different companies once a week just to re-expand his network in case he ever needed it. That's the kind of small things. 
I love it. And you know, we've went through a first year, right? Going through COVID, there's been a lot of shifts and a lot of uncertainty. But you know, there's also the fact that, you know, we might be actually facing something else, like an economic downturn in the months to come. And of course, it's all a question of probabilities at this point. But would you also have some advice as to like, how do we make the most out of even if we do say like, okay, let's expect the worst and prepare for the best. Do you have some more advice of things that you could be doing, particularly right now at this time early in 2021? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I'm <laughs> risk mitigation is my jam. I love mm. it. <laughs> I get kind of obsessed with it at a very basic level, right? I think that the way that entrepreneurship gets talked about in our culture, I actually think is misleading and kind of misguided because so much of the conversation is around, oh, you know, taking the leap, making the jump. It's the language of risk. But actually, smart entrepreneurship is the opposite. It is about capping the risk, mitigating the risk. And I think that that's a really important message. So when we think about things that we can do, you know, my two favorites, one of them at a very basic level, to the extent possible, and sometimes people have gotten locked in with this, but if you have choices to make, I am a really big fan always of making an effort to live below your means. When I started my business, and this now is 15 years ago, I was planning to buy a condo around the same time. And I deliberately bought a place. It was in the city that I wanted to be in, but it was in like the worst neighborhood <laughs> in that city. Like literally a couple of years later, the biggest heroin bust in the city's history happened across the street from my house. <laughs> And, you know, you might say, well, it might be a little suboptimal. But what I realized was I knew that if I was engaging in, you know, a little bit, a little bit more risk, quote unquote, in an element of my business where I was starting it, I didn't really know about getting clients and things like that. What I knew for sure is that I never wanted to be in a position where I felt so desperate to take work that it forced me to do things I didn't want to do or to make bad choices in my business. I wanted to build in margin. And so I made choices that facilitated peace of mind and economic peace, even if it was not like the nicest place to live that I could have like stretched to afford. That's one. And then the second thing, and this is a drum that I beat a lot because a lot of my work is centered on this question of like, how do you become a recognized expert in your field? And I think that part of why that is so important is that, you know, obviously at all times, right? Even when times are good, people like to turn to experts. If you are known as being good at what you do, I mean, that's never a bad thing, right? People love it. But especially when there is a downturn, there is almost always a flight to quality. And I believe this extremely strongly. When there is more risk in the air, when customers are worried about their future, when they're worried about economics, that is a time when they feel like, you know what? I can't make a mistake. I can't afford for this not to go right. And so they're just a lot less likely to take a chance on an unknown quantity or some random person, even if that person's cheap. They're like, yeah, but I just don't know anything about this guy. you know. And so they disproportionately will reward people that have an expert reputation in the marketplace, even if it's a little bit more expensive because they say, you know what? I just can't afford to take that chance. And so if you have built up your status as a recognized expert, that is one of the very best things that you can invest your time and your energy in because there's going to be disproportionate rewards in down markets. 
this is just as relevant for anybody who's in a career. I mean, anybody who's amazing at their job are usually not that worried about layoffs because if you're an A player, like they're going to do everything they can to retain you. So I would want to make sure that for those of you who are in the career, this advice is equally as applicable. And I know in the first interview, we talked about the ways to make yourself a better A player. We talked about the networking. We talked about, you know, using the skills you have in the workplace to be able to become a thought leader on platforms like LinkedIn. Is this still some of the primary advice you give to people or are there other things that you'd want to make sure we focus on? Yeah, there's really three key components, Jason. I spent a number of years studying really deeply the question of, well, how do you become a recognized expert? What does that actually look like? And fundamentally, what I came to discover in my research is that there are three main pieces that we need to optimize for. And oftentimes I'll get questions from people sometimes where they'll say, you know, ah, like, why isn't this working? I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't have the recognition that I want, but I'm doing it. I'm working so hard. I'm doing the things. And almost always what I discover is that they are doing a ton of one thing, like the thing that they like or the thing that they're good at, but they're not doing the other things. And the trick is you kind of have to do all of them. So they're all important in their own ways because they amplify each other. And so number one is content creation. I mean it very specifically. It's not that you have to blog or you have to have a podcast or you have to do videos, but content specifically is important because in one method or another, it could be giving speeches or being on panels. It could be doing lunch and learns in your company. It could be being the very best contributor on the Yammer network, you know, at work, whatever. But somehow you have to share your ideas publicly so that other people understand what your ideas are and they can see for themselves that they're good. That's number one. Number two is social proof, which is a term often used in psychology. It essentially means what is your credibility that you're telegraphing to other people? Why would they listen to you? You know, this is often about affiliations or things like that. So it makes it easy for people to know that you're credible. Oh, well, you know, she must be worth listening to because she's worked with so-and-so and so-and-so clients. Or, oh, well, you know, he must be a smart guy. You know, I saw him quoted in this, this magazine, something like that. And the third is your network because the former two, the content and the social proof, this is great, this is important, but no one will know about it if you are a hermit and live in a cave. And so you need to have a network that amplifies you. That is incredible. And as always, you always bring these amazing insights. And first, I'm seeing people like Aisha are sending in some messages because we have our Mindvalley community, of course, that always tunes in live. And if you're listening to the podcast and you'd love to be a part of this, always go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. And you can be part of the live audience where we're going to go deeper into these topics. But I also wanted to close into asking ourselves, like we're putting our content out there. There's a lot of different channels. And if anybody goes to listen to the first interview we have with Dory Clark, we go much more into details with that. But if I'm going to be a team leader and a manager, and I want to be able to make sure that my department or my entire business is ready to face a storm if necessary. And, you know, it's kind of counterproductive to the positive thinking methodologies that always says like, hey, just like take that big leap, as you said earlier, but it's like go out and, you know, expect a great, don't think negatively. It's almost like there's a culture that, that says to people, don't think of the negative, just focus on the positive doesn't seem like it's the right advice to protect people. So what do you usually offset to the positive thinking ideas? And what are the things we can do as a business owner or a leader to ensure we have more resilience? I am certainly a fan of 
positivity, right? I mean, in general, it's not the way to motivate a team or even yourself if you're just like, oh, you know, this is so terrible. Wow. You know, we'll never get through this. <laughs> it's not great. But actually, you know, again, you know, just sort of reframing it, I think that the distinction is less about positive and negative and more about what's true versus what you're wishing for. It is never a great strategy to just wish for stuff, right? Like it's much better to verify and to have it be real. And so, you know, it is possible that you say, oh, it'll all work out. And then like, you know, yay, you got lucky and it did. But personally, if I was making a choice, I would feel a heck of a lot better if I knew that things for sure were going to work out. And the way you do that is you say, well, what's the worst that could happen? Oh, okay. Well, have I developed strategies that if that actually happened, that I know that my business could still get through it? Yes. Okay. Well, then I actually am resilient. It's like anything else, right? It's like having insurance. It's like, I really hope there's not a fire in my apartment. Like, I really hope there's not. But if there is, because I have insurance, I know that I won't go bankrupt and lose everything. And you know what? It costs whatever, $1,000 a year. Like that is worth it to me for the peace of mind. And it's the same thing for the kind of time investments or strategic investments that we make in our business. I love it. Dory Clark, thank you so much for coming and sharing these updated insights for us and for everybody tuning in. Of course, as a quick recap, we really kicked off with this understanding that if you see a change, you need to understand that your resiliency will come with your creativity where you'll need to possibly pivot whatever it is you're doing. Don't drag your feet and understand what are the new opportunities and the new reality. And that way you'll be able to find creative ways you can generate income. We've shared some personal experiences from Dory's and as well as other businesses that decided to look for new ways to generate that income. Of course, some industries are tougher than others, but keep yourself developing, keep yourself growing so that you're going to be the most resilient individually. So that'll help you have more mental and emotional intelligence to support you during the hard times. Now, also, I love the personal tips that we always speak about, which are very key, which is keep diversifying your skills, keep investing in your expertise, be that a player or be that a product or service in the marketplace. Because if you are the recognized expert or you are the company that has the amazing brand, that has the amazing quality, the amazing service, you are going to survive and more than likely thrive even in the hardest of times because the ones that are doing amazing really are the ones that survive in the process. Of course, we talked about things that you can do individually, which is keep creating content to be more recognized as an expert. Make sure to get the social proof whenever you are doing things and make sure you keep networking. Building that network is huge. There's so many platforms you can do it, especially things like LinkedIn, which is more for the professional network. But if you keep doing these things, this will always make you a more recognized expert as an an employee, as a thought leader, or as a company, you want to put your stake in the ground. And of course, we finished off with making sure that as uncertain times come, we all want to be positive. Yet, make sure you make a plan that can keep you supported in case things don't go exactly as planned because wishful thinking is just that. We want to be serious about it and make sure we're successful in the process. Thank you so much, Dory, for coming back on the show and sharing these amazing insights and everybody for tuning in. Keep being superhumans. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, 
you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.